0: Chapter 4 Scope What Do Disciples Need? I once worked at a church that had a few dozen class offerings and several different studies for small groups to work through, along with a sermon discussion guide. This church was trying to create spaces that were equally committed to learning and community, which is a great place to start. There were some great offerings like parenting training, a class on the story of the Bible, a curriculum designed to help people be better stewards of their money, a recovery curriculum and corresponding groups, a young marrieds group, and more. All of these are great topics, and at different points in the life of a disciple, perhaps some of these topics are indispensable. However, I began to realize that the church staff itself didn't really know why we were offering one class and not another. Over the years, new offerings were provided. Staff came and went, and we were left with what I call a Frankenstein philosophy of ministry. A Frankenstein philosophy of ministry is a ministry creation that is the result of a lot of ministry experiments that don't fit well together but end up being one big monster. Over the course of years, different things are added, taken away and tweaked without considering the whole picture. Ministries were operating in silos, seeing only what mattered for their ministry. Just like an either-or approach to ministry, a Frankenstein philosophy of ministry cannot produce whole disciples. Usually this philosophy of ministry is birthed by asking the question, What do disciples want? Instead of asking the better question, What do disciples need? Instead of asking the sheep what they want, good shepherds know what their sheep need. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how do all of these parts fit together? For example, why offer a parenting class and not a class on Romans? Why offer a class on the doctrine of God and not a class on the doctrine of salvation? Should we do missional communities or small groups? Do those small groups work through their own curriculum or should they discuss the sermon series? We realized we had never really sat down and decided why we were teaching and training toward a specific topic and how that topic related to other trainings. Things were added over time, and we didn't really know why we should or shouldn't do things a certain way. We never really sat down to decide together what kind of curriculum we felt was indispensable, not just helpful, for discipleship. If church leaders are confused about why we are teaching certain things and not others, then certainly the people we are teaching are equally, if not more, confused. We had never asked the question, what is nice versus what is necessary? In my experience, this is descriptive of most churches. We have good offerings, groups, and curricula for people, but we are unsure how each discipleship class, curriculum, or group relates to the others. We are unsure of how it all fits together. The most effective churches realize that the sum of their ministries is greater than the parts. When each ministry has an understanding of how it contributes to the whole, we are able to do more together than apart. Churches that do the hard work of asking and answering these hard questions have the greatest chance of producing and replicating deep disciples. All of these important questions fall under the question of scope. What do disciples need on their journey to holistic formation? These questions are some of the most important questions one can answer in moving toward a holistic plan for discipleship in the local church. Answering them requires a great deal of courage because your answers will change your church. Some of the most important questions for a church to ask and answer are, What do disciples need and how can the church give it to them? What do we need to change in order to train, equip, and prepare our church to live as whole people? Is everything we are offering through groups, classes, and curriculum necessary to discipleship, or are we offering things that are nice? All of these questions are ultimately questions about scope. What are the indispensable and unique characteristics of discipleship that church is responsible for embedding into the hearts, souls, minds, and bodies of their members. Scope is all about what is indispensable and necessary. This is a question virtually every organization has already answered, whether they know it or not. For example, public school systems have to answer this question as they seek to develop responsible citizens. They have decided that topics like science, math, social studies, and physical education are appropriate topics for training young boys and girls. Gyms answer this question by helping people grow in their understanding of health, fitness, weight training, and diet. What you probably will not see is a school teacher training her students in scuba diving or a gym owner teaching his clients about basket weaving. But why? Because they have clearly defined their scope of responsibility. Every institution, including churches, has already answered, either intentionally or unintentionally, the question of scope. A gym knows what its members need, and a school knows what students need. But does your church know what disciples need? The Non-Negotiables of Discipleship So here are some questions for you. Have you decided in what areas you must be training, equipping, and growing your people? What are the non-negotiables of discipleship for you? Are you actually training and growing your people in these areas? The question of scope can be a ruthless question to answer, because you may find out that a lot of your time, energy, and attention are going to good things, but not great things. I realized that in one church where I worked. I was given oversight of a ministry that had thirty-nine different course offerings with only one hundred twenty-nine people involved. Each class had about three to six people involved. I began to see that all the time, energy, and attention given to nice but not necessary things were contributing to a Frankenstein philosophy of ministry. Once I became a Christian in college, I realized that this was a question most churches and Christian organizations had largely neglected. It wasn't that they were not teaching and training. It was that they had forgotten why they were teaching and training certain things. Most of the Christians I met had a deep love for the Lord, but were largely untrained as it related to becoming deep disciples. They were the recipients and products of a Frankenstein approach to ministry. They knew the stories of the Bible, but not the story of the Bible. They knew some secondary or tertiary Christian beliefs, but not the basics of the faith. They knew that they were supposed to pray, but did not understand how a larger picture of spiritual disciplines can form a whole disciple. Largely, their discipleship, the kinds of people they were, was reflective of this Frankenstein approach to ministry. These disciples were products of an unclear and unintentional discipleship scope. Every church must decide what the scope of discipleship is. If deep discipleship in the local church is focused on helping disciples grow deeper in fellowship with the infinitely beautiful and glorious God, what tools do disciples need on their journey? Your scope represents what you think are the core competencies of discipleship. What is absolutely indispensable for your people to be learning and growing? What are the core competencies you believe every disciple should have? What are the absolute necessities a disciple of Jesus must study and learn in order to walk as a whole disciple of Christ? Most importantly, how can your church come alongside them and equip and train them for this work? I don't believe every church needs to answer this question the same way, but I do think there will be a lot of commonalities between churches. Once you have decided what your scope is, start cutting away everything else. It is energy you do not need to be expending. Of course, do it slowly and with sensibility, but once you have decided a class or group is nice, not necessary, it is time for you to give it an exit plan. At least stop doing it until you have implemented discipleship spaces that train toward the core competencies you believe are essential to disciples. In other words, scope is your decision-making mechanism. Is it a part of your scope and core competencies? If yes, then fuel it. If not, then stop it. Scope is the solution to avoiding a Frankenstein philosophy of ministry. How do you decide what your scope is? You need to think about what virtues, characteristics, or learning outcomes the disciples in your church must have. You cannot expect disciples to grow or be proficient in topics in which you are not providing training. In other words, train specifically and only toward the discipleship competencies you develop. We cannot expect people to learn what we are not teaching them. As you think about the core competencies where you believe all disciples should develop proficiency, Here are three areas I believe deserve your consideration. The three topics, or buckets, that I think present a comprehensive picture of discipleship are Bible, beliefs, and spiritual habits. A healthy disciple must be growing in the understanding of God's Word, founded on distinctively Christian beliefs and practicing spiritual disciplines. What does every disciple need? They need Scripture, doctrine, and spiritual habits. The Bible must be at the center of the Christian life. It is God's Word, authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient for growing as a healthy disciple of Christ. Scripture is God's ordained means of revealing and giving Himself to us. Basic Christian beliefs are also indispensable for the Christian life. They help us know who God is, who we are, what the world is, and how we can be faithful participants in God's mission. Spiritual habits help disciples train not just their heads, but also their hearts and their bodies as disciples of Christ. Discipleship is not just growing to love God with our minds, but with our whole selves. Spiritual habits help us become whole people. These three categories together represent a comprehensive scope that provides both flexibility to teach topics that fit underneath these broader themes and clarity to make decisions of what is outside the discipleship scope of the local church. Think of these three topics as ministry buckets that a lot of things can fit into, but not everything. Under the scope of the Bible, you could offer Equipping on how to read the Bible A class on the story of the Bible Studies on specific books of the Bible Old Testament and New Testament survey Under basic beliefs, you may decide to teach your church's doctrinal statement, a historic creed or confession like the Apostles' Creed, a class in systematic theology. In the bucket of spiritual habits, you could train toward Sabbath, evangelism, prayer, healthy emotions, vocation and calling. There is still flexibility as you make decisions related to scope, but we should not confuse flexibility with a lack of clarity the church has to be clear about what specific discipleship competencies you want them to be equipped in. Since this is your decision-making mechanism, you can begin to answer questions like, should we offer a class on finances? Should we offer small group curriculum on Romans? Should we offer classes specific to life stage, like singles, newlyweds, or parents? Every ministry decision related to discipleship is viewed through the lens of scope. Scope. What do disciples need? Bible, beliefs, and spiritual habits. Therefore, the goal of SCOPE is to help people grow in these three areas. Our entire philosophy of ministry should be guided by developing ministry environments that guide people into greater affection for Christ and the gospel through these three buckets. In other words, I am suggesting that once you have developed your SCOPE, and perhaps you would take away from this list or add something else, this becomes your decision-making mechanism for ministry. Are we going to offer that training? Depends. Does it fit inside our scope of discipleship? How are we going to organize our group life? Well, is it helping people grow in Scripture, Christian beliefs, or basic spiritual disciplines? Once you know what the core competencies of discipleship are, aim all of your efforts toward helping your people grow in them. Bible I want to spend some time advocating that this is a good and holistic scope for discipleship. Why should the Bible be part of the scope of discipleship? The Bible is at the center of the Christian life. It is impossible to be a follower of Christ without being a student of His Word. The Bible is God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient word. Writing to Timothy, Paul highlights the centrality of Scripture for the Christian life when he argues, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 The claim that the Bible is the breath of God means there is no substitute for Scripture in growing holistic disciples. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself and His ongoing self-giving. In other words, Scripture is where God has made Himself known, and it is where He continues to make Himself known. Deep and holistic discipleship is birthed, sustained, and preserved in Scripture. Herman Bavinck highlights the centrality of Scripture for discipleship when he comments, In the Scriptures, God daily comes to His people, not from afar, but nearby. In it He reveals Himself from day to day to believers in the fullness of His truth and grace. Through it He works His miracles of compassion and faithfulness. Scripture is the ongoing rapport between heaven and earth, between Christ and His Church between God and His children. It does not just tie us to the past, it binds us to the living Lord in the heavens. It is the living voice of God. The first act of churches that want to grow in deep fellowship and communion with God is to listen to what God says in Scripture. We've already seen that one of the greatest challenges to discipleship is the biblical illiteracy that plagues the contemporary church. It is simply impossible to grow as a follower of Christ without being a student of His Word. Yet we find that there are so few students of the Word. We lack deep disciples because we lack deep meditation on the Word. Biblical illiteracy is devastating to discipleship. The goal of Bible literacy is not simply biblical knowledge, but participation. Knowledge of God's Word is meant to lead to participation in God's story. In other words, we should not be interested in people just doing better on Bible trivia. We should be interested in their ability to participate in God's story. I do not just want to get the story into people. I want to get people living into the story. Deep discipleship is about pursuing the kind of knowledge that transforms, not just informs. In Scripture, God is inviting us into deeper fellowship with Himself and into greater participation in His mission. Yet study after study suggests that the Church has never been less familiar with our sacred text than we are today, even while we have never enjoyed more access to it. We have an abundance of biblical resources and a famine of biblical knowledge. You can't participate in the story you don't understand. If we don't know the story contained in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and by every indication we don't. How can we hope to participate in it? James gives us a picture of what it means to both know and participate in the story of Scripture. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James chapter 1, verses 21-24 through 24. Surely we need to be both hearers and doers of God's word, but we can't expect to be doers until we have first been hearers. Hearing God in His word is a prerequisite to doing God's word in our lives. The goal of biblical literacy is faithful participation in God's mission, to be both hearers and doers of God's word. However, while the church suffers through a crisis of biblical illiteracy, we run the risk of being doers without first being hearers. If we send people to participate in God's mission without knowing what His mission is, then we run the real risk of inventing our own mission. The Discipleship Outcome of Bible Literacy is Biblical Participation in God's Mission. I imagine that almost everybody listening to a book like this agrees with almost everything I have said so far. We are facing a crisis in biblical literacy, check. We need to grow in our knowledge of the Bible, not just so we can know it better but so that we might participate in it, check. In other words. Most of us agree that as God has called us to lead in the church and to make disciples, the Bible needs to be at the center of what we are doing. We agree that the Bible is God's word. If we agree on all of this, then what is the point? My point is that it is not enough to agree with the doctrine of biblical authority if it is not impacting the way we do ministry and the kind of disciples we are making. How is it that we agree on the Bible's authority, yet so many of our churches are biblically illiterate? Most of us have a doctrinal confession of biblical authority that does not line up with our application in ministry. You may think the Bible is at the center of your discipleship program, but it may not be. Having a statement on biblical authority on your website is futile if you are not practicing biblical authority in your ministry. The Bible is not an accessory in discipleship. It is a necessity. The canon is the curriculum of the Christian life. Only the whole Bible can make whole Christians. What would it look like for the members of your church to know not just some of the stories in the Bible, but the story of the Bible? What if your philosophy of ministry could help them become participants in that story and could help them learn how to invite others into that story as well? Disciples need to learn how to inhabit the story of the Bible, claims Kevin Van Hooser. If your church is not helping people know and participate in the true story of Scripture, their minds, hearts, and imaginations will be captivated by other false stories. There is no greater tool for deep discipleship than encountering God in Scripture. He does the work through the Word. The Bible is not for the spiritually elite. It is for every disciple. As you are thinking about the scope of discipleship for your church, Scripture should be at the center. Without it, deep discipleship is impossible. Beliefs The second core competency for whole disciples is a growing understanding and appreciation for Christian beliefs. Doctrine is for everybody. Basic Christian beliefs are the most practical thing the church can give disciples. Often theology is seen as an obstacle to discipleship, but it is actually the foundation of Christian living. The term theology comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. It basically translates as words about God or God's word about himself. Is anything more practical than words about God? Is anything more important and practical than synthesizing and understanding what God has said about himself? I do not think there is. Doctrine and discipleship go hand in hand. In many churches, theology has gained a reputation of being distant, impractical, and unimportant. I have even heard some pastors and churches say that doctrine gets in the way of true discipleship. Many people have seen doctrine divide and not heal, confuse and not guide. The truth is I have seen that too, but that is not the fault of doctrine, it is the fault of people misusing doctrine. When we see theology as unimportant for discipleship, it is not as if our people are adopting a doctrineless discipleship. If we fail to teach disciples how to behave like Christians, they will adopt other beliefs. Everyone is a theologian because everyone has words about God. Everyone has gone to seminary. The only question is whether we know it or not. The question for our churches and for the people we are discipling is, are we forming people who think and believe Christianly? Or are we neglecting doctrine and letting the world form them into people who think and believe like the world? Basic Christian beliefs are essential for deep and holistic discipleship in the local church, and holistic disciples know they are theologians. When did indoctrination become bad? Indoctrination happens almost everywhere. Songs, schools, books, movies, cable news, social media, Literally everything is meant to indoctrinate us. Our people are being shaped and formed into certain ways of believing, and the local church must be the place where Christians are trained to believe like disciples of Christ. One of the first things pilots are taught to do when flying a plane is to keep their eyes on the horizon. They are trained to set their eyes on the horizon because this will keep the plane from plummeting dangerously close to the ground from ascending too quickly into the sky, or from tilting to the right or the left. Keeping your eyes on the horizon is the basic instinct of any pilot flying a plane. But what happens when a pilot is unable to keep his eyes on the horizon? What happens when clouds, rain, snow, and darkness limit a pilot's ability to see? The instinct of most pilots is to trust their intuition and spatial orientation. In other words, they want to feel their way through their inability to see. Yet, all pilots are taught not to trust their intuition in moments like this because of spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation is the phenomenon of not being able to tell where your body, or plane in this instance, is in space. In a sense, your instincts and feelings lie to you. In spatial disorientation, you cannot tell where your body is in space, even though you think you can. You may feel right side up, but in reality you are upside down. Pilots are trained, if they can't see the horizon, to keep their eyes on the gauges, even and especially when it may feel like the plane is plummeting or ascending. By trusting their gauges, they are able to keep the plane on course and away from anything that could harm the plane and the passengers. Think about how counterintuitive that is. Trusting the gauges requires an incredible amount of faith because at times it doesn't feel right. It feels disorienting, and it feels dangerous. But when they trust the gauges and visibility is restored, they are flying right side up and in the right direction. Doctrine is the gauges of the Christian life. It is what orients disciples in a disorienting world. When the church fails to give disciples theology, we are abandoning them to trust their intuition in the darkness of the world. We are telling them that they do not need to receive direction from anything else other than what they feel is right, and many of them are crashing. Misguided beliefs lead to a misguided life. In 2018, LifeWay Research and Ligonier Ministries released a research project on the state of theology. This research is meant to help local churches understand the current theological temperature of the church. The results are sobering. The church is confused about who God is, what it means to be an image-bearer, who Christ is, what sin is, what salvation is, and much more. For example, we can see that evangelicals are largely confused about the person of Christ. When asked to agree or disagree with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. A fourth-century heresy known as Arianism, 78% of evangelicals agreed. The Church is also largely confused about the exclusivity of Christ. When asked to agree or disagree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, 51% of evangelicals agreed. One final example. When asked to agree or disagree, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. A heresy known as Pelagianism, 52% of evangelicals agreed. These results are alarming, not only because evangelicals are getting questions wrong on a survey, but because these are the kinds of disciples that are being made in our churches. When we see research like this, it is easy, as a pastor or leader, To assume it does not represent your church, but the church down the street. We believe that while we could probably do a little bit better, we also assume we are doing better than some other churches in town. This is the wrong instinct. Research like this gives all of us the opportunity to look in the mirror and realize that in our attempt to create doctrineless disciples, we are actually creating doctrinally confused disciples. All disciples believe doctrine, just not always Christian doctrine. This research does not just reflect the church down the street. This research reflects your church. This is one reason basic Christian beliefs need to be included in your scope and core competencies for holistic discipleship. It is time for us to realize that our people are trusting their untrustworthy instincts, not the trustworthy gauges of Christian beliefs. The lack of sound doctrine in the church has not always been the case. For centuries, the church was led by creed, confession, and catechism. One of the ways forward for holistic disciples in the local church is a recovery of doctrinally motivated discipleship. Discipleship that is apathetic to doctrine, beliefs, and theology is not Christian discipleship. Why is doctrine so important? It is important because of what it is, the pathway into deeper fellowship and joy with God. Our belief about who God is leads us deeper into communion with Him, not further away from Him. Doctrine is ultimately about love. My wife Macy and I talk about this all the time. We have been married for 12 years and I adore her. Nobody in the world has taught me more about God than she has. In fact, She was one of the first Christians I met. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is in the technology industry. She is 5 feet 4 inches tall and has beautiful brunette hair. One of the things I love the most about her is how artistic and creative she is. I love her more than anyone else in the world. If you actually knew my wife, you would question how much I love her based on that description. My wife is actually in the marketing industry. She is 5 feet 10 inches tall and has gorgeous blonde hair. She is not very artistic, but is very athletic. Based on my inability to describe my wife accurately, you would wonder, does he really love his wife, or does he just say that he loves his wife? You might wonder if I really knew her all that well. If I was regularly misdescribing, misunderstanding, and misrepresenting who Macy is, eventually you would begin to question my love for her. You would wonder how deep our relationship is when it appears that I don't even know her. We understand that knowing who someone is, knowing everything about them, and delighting in who they are, are parts of loving them. Doctrineless disciples cannot love God because they do not know Him we need to confront the idea that pervades evangelicalism that we can worship a God we do not know. As Jen Wilkin points out, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Doctrine does not lead to displeasure, but to delight. Knowledge of God leads us deeper into God, not further away from God. Knowing who my wife is, knowing all I can about her, leads to love. Similarly, knowing who God is, knowing all we can about Him, leads disciples into deeper fellowship and love. Paul highlights this in his letter to the Colossians. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. For Paul, holistic disciples are filled with, and are increasing in, the knowledge of God. Why? Because it is then, and only then, that they can walk in a manner worthy and pleasing to Him. Knowledge of God leads to faithfulness and fruitfulness. We cannot be faithful and fruitful to a God we do not know. Yaroslav Pelikan defines doctrine as what the Church believes, teaches, and confesses as it prays, suffers, serves, and obeys, celebrates, and awaits the coming of the Kingdom of God. In other words, basic Christian beliefs guide the Church into holistic discipleship in every season of life as we wait for the coming of the Kingdom of God. It is the spectacles we put on in order to interpret the world around us. Kevin Van Hooser says it this way, Christians learn doctrine in order to participate more deeply, passionately, and truthfully in the drama of redemption. If this is true, deep discipleship is dependent on doctrine, and churches that want to make deep disciples must guide their churches into faithful belief. One reason many churches have moved away from the role of doctrine in discipleship is in response to the tendency to emphasize the wrong doctrines. Not all beliefs are the same. There are core beliefs and secondary beliefs. There are doctrines we hold with a closed hand and others we hold with an open hand. Sometimes churches become more known for open-handed, secondary doctrines than close-handed, core doctrines. The reason I think that is the case is that secondary doctrines, like infant believer baptism, continuationism, cessationism, complementarianism, egalitarianism, are what separates some Christians from other Christians. Historically speaking, this makes sense. In a perceived culture and climate that is overtly Christian, a church's primary instinct is to distinguish itself from other churches, not the world. In other words, Baptists distinguish themselves from Presbyterians Presbyterians distinguish themselves from Anglicans, and Anglicans distinguish themselves from free church evangelicals. However, in an increasingly secular climate, Christians need to be less focused on what separates us from one another and more focused on what separates us from the world. What distinguishes Christians from the world is not secondary issues but primary issues, like Trinitarianism, Creation, Providence, and Christology. While secondary issues are still important, they are not as important for holistic disciples as the foundational and primary issues. Yet sometimes we still major on the minors. At a church I served, we were working through our membership material, and it struck me that the membership booklet had a three-page exposition on complementarianism and one bullet point on trinitarianism. We were interested in making sure that our potential members understood our stance on men and women, but, at least according to appearance of the pamphlet, less interested in our potential members being Trinitarians. We were running the risk of admitting members who were clear in their understanding of complementarianism and confused in their understanding of Trinitarianism. Part of reintroducing doctrine into the local church will be helping our church and our people do doctrinal triage. We need to know what matters most and why. For example, it does us no good to create a complementarian, unitarian. Even though I am a committed complementarian, I would far rather be in fellowship with a trinitarian who is an egalitarian than a complementarian who is a unitarian. As we reintroduce doctrine into the life of the local church, we need to start with the essentials, not the non-essentials deep disciples want to meditate on the triune Godhead. They want to consider the mystery of the incarnation and be captivated by the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When we start with the essentials, we are able to show more simply the pastoral nature of theology and how it aids the Christian life. Our churches will begin to see Trinitarianism as the foundation for all of the Christian life. They will see how union with Christ is perhaps the most pastorally helpful doctrine available to us. They will see how the doctrine of the atonement offers assurance to the anxious. Doctrine is deeply pastoral. Let me give you an example of the pastoral nature of doctrine. There was a couple in one of my classes for several years. They had been involved in Bible studies for years and eventually entered our one-year discipleship training program. As we were making our way through the curriculum, we spent a week on creation and providence, that God creates and governs all things. This was a doctrine that, candidly, they really struggled with. It was challenging for them to see how a good God could create all things, govern all things, and be infinitely powerful, yet still allow bad things to happen, a question many have struggled with for centuries. Shortly after that lecture they dealt with several tragic deaths in their family. The doctrine they thought was going to be a hindrance instead brought healing. If God is not sovereign, we cannot trust Him in the storm. But if He is, then this doctrine is a sure and steady anchor for the soul in every season. Doctrine did not hinder their fellowship with God. It invited them deeper into fellowship with God. It was the trustworthy gauge they could follow when their entire world was going through severe turbulence, leaving them disoriented. I have seen students find comfort in the sovereignty of God as they or loved ones face death. Others have been encouraged in their union with Christ in the midst of battling against sin. Some have taken refuge in the fatherhood of God while struggling with infertility. The future resurrection comforted one particular student as she endured round after round of chemotherapy treatment. She would sit in class week after week, slowly losing her hair and weight, all while growing in her confidence that death has lost its victory and sting and that one day she would rise victoriously with him. Doctrine does not divide. It unites. It does not harm. It heals. It reorients us in a disorienting world. In the dark night of the soul, we may not need to learn more doctrine, but we need to be able to lean into the doctrine we already know. In the dark night of the soul, we do not need a lecture of divine providence, but we need to be able to lean into the beautiful truth and mystery of divine providence we already believe. Doctrine makes suffering tolerable because it reorients us to the Creator and His purposes in the world. As our people and churches experience darkness, they will lean into something. It will either be the glorious truths of who God is and what He has done in Christ, or it will be something else. They will trust something, so the church must give them something trustworthy. Christian belief is a stabilizing discipleship tool in a destabilizing and broken world. As my friend and colleague Kyle Worley says, we shout doctrine in the light so that we can whisper it in the dark. When we do not disciple our people in basic Christian beliefs, we withhold the very thing they need to navigate our broken world. Spiritual Habits We are all formed by what we do. The habits we develop shape us into who we are. That is why the third core competency for holistic discipleship is helping our churches go deeper into fellowship with God through the practice of distinctly Christian habits. We are not just minds that need to know doctrine, but whole people who need to learn rhythms and habits that help us live into the story of God. Distinctly Christian habits are precariously absent from most discipleship initiatives. Yet habits are inescapable. We all have them. Discipleship can tend to focus only on how what we know shapes us, while simultaneously neglecting how what we do shapes us. As Justin Early points out, we are all living according to a specific regimen of habits, and those habits shape most of our life. We are formed by what we do, so one of the core competencies of growing disciples is learning how to practice Christian habits. Not only do we become what we worship, but we also become what we do. The Church has struggled to account for how powerful habits are in the life of disciples, and we have struggled to account for how habits that are not reflective of the gospel deform us. James K. A. Smith says, Christian worship is essential counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in, cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and our longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. The rhythms and habits of the world are forming our people, and the church that is focused on creating holistic disciples is offering counter rhythms and habits that form us into the people of God. Churches that only focus on forming the mind will not be successful in shaping holistic disciples. The paradox of discipleship in the church is that we have so underestimated the power of formative habit that we have actually been formed more deeply by unintentional habits than we realize. The Bible's vision for holistic discipleship is for the whole person, not just a part of the person. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 and Luke chapter 10 verse 27. The church is called to invite disciples not only to love God with our whole selves, but to be reminded that God loves our whole selves. That means no part of our lives is off-limits. God wants all of us. Churches, then, are to be places where disciples are called to integrate their minds with their hearts, their hearts with their souls, and their souls with their strength. Deep discipleship is aware of the whole person. There are two ways churches should incorporate formative habits into a discipleship. Corporate habits and individual habits. Corporate habits are the habits and rhythms the whole church is invited into. What the body does together shapes its individual members. The most obvious weekly habit the church participates in together is the gathering. Consistent weekly attendance at the gathering is an essential characteristic of healthy churches. The local church is able to intentionally form people through formative worship services that have the whole person in view. You are already shaping your people through the weekly gathering, but are you being as intentional as you could? Have you thought through how the order of service is forming your people? How intentional you are about the order of your weekly gathering matters, because the weekly gathering is not just about informing minds, but forming whole persons. In the weekly gathering, you have the opportunity to call the whole person to worship the one God, which is a reminder that all of the idols we were tempted to worship during the last week are indeed not God, because there is only one true God who is worthy of our worship. The Church is able to corporately confess sin and lament over the brokenness of the world together. Through the preached Word, the whole person is, quite literally, able to sit under the Word and have the good news of the Gospel proclaimed over them. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to regularly participate in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper together as a body, as well as regular sacrificial giving. In these corporate habits, the whole church is invited to live into the whole story as whole people. Not only can the local church invite the whole people of God into corporate habits, but habit formation should be a part of your discipleship strategy for individuals. Which habits are appropriate for each person will depend on the discipleship space they are part of. The main point here is that you are never just teaching ideas, but also always integrating those ideas into habits. People need to have space to do what they are growing to know. For example, when the training program at the village church works through the doctrine of the providence of God, the students do not just read about providence and then hear a lecture on providence, They do a formation assignment on Sabbath that requires them to step away from the business of life and practice the sovereignty of God. It is not enough to read about the sovereignty of God. We also have to learn how to practice the sovereignty of God through habits. We invite our students to spend four hours with the Lord, practicing the sovereignty of God. Doctrine should be integrated into disciplines. This is the work of integration an integrated disciple loves God with her whole self, not just her mind. Whenever you are teaching part of the story of scripture or a part of Christian beliefs, those things must be integrated into spiritual habits that invite the whole person into discipleship. The story forms doctrine and doctrine forms our disciplines. Teaching void of habit formation tends toward Gnosticism. Habit formation void of teaching tends toward empty ritualism, teaching and habit formation together tend toward wholeness, integration. Holistic disciples are integrating the true story of the world, the true beliefs contained in Scripture, and spiritual habits that form them into whole disciples. Another example of habit formation occurs when we work through wisdom literature and the Psalms. Alongside teaching on these topics, we have students write out their own psalm or a prayer to God. We encourage them to spend a few weeks writing, erasing, praying, and writing some more. This is a habit unfamiliar to most. They are used to extemporaneous prayers but not sustained, written prayer over the course of weeks. It is incredible to read their prayers and hear what they are asking God to do in their lives. It has made me a better pastor. After we collect the prayers, we incorporate them into a prayer book that we give to everyone who completes the training program. We also have incorporated those prayers into the corporate service so that our individual members are contributing to the collective gathering. These three elements of the scope I am recommending are all integral to holistic discipleship. They are like a braid. If you leave any one of them out, the other two cease to hold together. They mutually inform and they are mutually interdependent. What Disciples Need Instead of asking the question, what do disciples want, we need to ask the better question, what do disciples need? The Bible, our beliefs, and our spiritual habits are what disciples need on the journey of going into deeper fellowship and communion with God in the local church. The Bible, beliefs, and habits are the foundation of a holistic scope of deep discipleship. These three are not nice discipleship outcomes, but necessary discipleship outcomes. These core competencies represent the foundation of a scope of discipleship in the local church. The role of the local church is to invite people into participating in the true story of Scripture. The role of the local church is to instruct people in basic Christian beliefs. The role of the local church is to invite people into distinctly Christian formative habits that shape the whole person. As the primary context for deep discipleship, local churches need to ask and answer the question not only of space, where are we forming people, but also of scope. What do disciples need? When we ask the important question of scope, we are able to guide and aim all of our ministry efforts toward equipping the saints with the competencies of deep discipleship. What do disciples need? Main Ideas 1. The most effective churches realize that the sum of their ministries is greater than the parts. When each ministry has an understanding of how it contributes to the whole, we are able to do more together than apart. 2. Your scope represents what you think are the core competencies of discipleship. What you think is absolutely indispensable for your people to be learning and growing. 3. Instead of asking the question, what do disciples want, we need to ask the better question, what do disciples need? Questions for Discussion 1. Do you agree that it is important for churches to determine an intentional scope of discipleship and build everything on that scope? Why or why not? 2. Discuss what you think are the indispensable elements of discipleship for which the local church is responsible. In other words, what are the non-negotiables of discipleship? 3. What will happen to a church in the long run if it continues asking what disciples want rather than asking what they need? To-do list 1. Has your church been asking the question, what do disciples want? Or has it been asking the question, what do disciples need? What evidence is there for your answer? If you've been asking the first question, make a plan for shifting to the second. 2 determine together a concise list of the indispensable elements of discipleship to which your church will be committed. 3. At the end of the last chapter, you categorized the list of ministries and programs currently active in your church. Now, as you come across each, ask, how does this fit with the whole? Does it fall into any of the indispensable categories previously mentioned? If not, Start thinking now about how you can transition out of that ministry or program and discuss whether it should be replaced and with what.